And if you can open up your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we're at today. If you're a guest with us, we preach mostly through books of the Bible and go kind of chapter by chapter or section by section. And it's been a joy for us to engage this this ancient piece of literature that was inspired by the Holy Spirit as God's word to us uh, to provide wisdom for our lives, to speak very relevantly to our daily lives. And I trust the Lord is going to do the same from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, what a rich time it's been already in your presence. Lord, thank you for the gifts that we've already received, the good gifts that you have given to each of us as we From the moment each of us woke up this morning, we're surrounded, Lord, by your blessings, by your your new mercies that greeted us and have followed us even into this place. Thank you for the gift of singing and worship and and for prophecy and for prayer and for, for celebrating communion together and remembering you, Christ. We pray that you would continue to encourage us. Give us hope, Lord, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow as we study your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it was October of 1965. Yes, this was before I was born, but barely. But in in October of 1965, a band called The Birds made a song written by Pete Seeger based on a poem in the Bible, a worldwide hit. Turn, turn, turn became something of an anthem in the 1960s and beyond. It rose to number one on the Billboard charts back then, and then for years, countless graduating classes would hear this song either as they were in their ceremony or they would march out to this song. Maybe you can hear the jangly guitars and the tight harmonies in your head to every season, turn, turn, turn. It's also a song that's been covered by a number of artists since, and in 1994, it had a a bit of a resurgence as it became a part of the soundtrack of Forrest Gump's life in that movie. Today, you can Google this song and be the 19,683,566th person to hear it, at least as of yesterday. Now, just like any song, I don't imagine that Pete Seeger knew where this simple Bible poem set to music would eventually go. I I certainly am sure that that the birds had no idea right after recording this song how much it would become a part of the soundtrack of a generation's life and how many times that song would circle the globe over the next 60 years. But I'm definitely sure that none of them had any idea that they were injecting into the consciousness of our nation an existential anchoring of the ebbs and flows nature of our lives with words that came from God in the first place. I know they didn't know that. Because the poem that was put to music comes from Ecclesiastes 3. Today we're going to look at this poem and learn from it. We're going to look at a time for everything. We're going to see the God of all time. We're going to consider our times. First, we're going to look at this famous and beloved poem, and then we're going to ask three questions. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about us? And then how should each of us respond this morning to God's word. So look at it with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Cover the first eight verses at first, and then we'll go on. But this is God's word. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, 
a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. All right, so let's, let's first look at this, this poem and most agree that what I just read is, is beautiful and even mesmerizing in ways, and certainly it's powerful. It's beautiful because of its, its repetition. The word time, of course, is used 28 times in this poem, and time becomes the main feature of this poem, of course. And it's beautiful also in that it rolls off the tongue in really any language around the world. It doesn't matter what language you read this in. It's, it's just simply beautiful. It's mesmerizing because of the rhythm, right, of these couplets uh, of opposites that are contained in each one of the lines. And, and of course, it's powerful because of its content, because of the contents of this poem that, that comes to us in a beautiful and mesmerizing way. There are 14 lines that in the end describe the totality of the human experience. 14, of course, is, is seven times two, and seven is the biblical number of completion. So the preacher gives us a super complete description of life, a double complete description of human life. But we also find power in this figure of speech that he uses, where he mentions the outside markers of a thing but he is simultaneously referencing everything in between. So when the first line says a time to be born and a time to die, what also comes into view is everything in between. All of life. We see this kind of thing in Genesis chapter 1, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth. None of us said, oh, great, well then who created the rest? Right? That's not how that works. He created the heavens and the earth, and everything in between. But, but don't miss it. The, the poet preacher, we're in Ecclesiastes, and he has a goal. The poet preacher here, Solomon, alerts us to another element of life under the sun, albeit in a, in a poetic way, which is classic for wisdom literature. But he doesn't he doesn't lead us into another reflection necessarily on work proper or wisdom as he's evaluated wisdom under the sun or even pleasure. Those have been kind of the main three that he's touched on so far. He addresses now this built-in duality in our lives, the changing nature of life that plays out in time, in the seasons of our lives that necessarily change like the seasons of the year. Life isn't the same thing all the time under the sun. It's kind of the new insight. Life isn't monolithic. And if you just follow with me, 
Starting in verse 2, there is a time to be born and a time to die. These are two appointments we've all heard that every man or woman must keep. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Usually you plant in the spring and harvest in the fall or vice versa, but you get the point. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. You know, to read the Bible is to know not only about justice and punishment for law-breaking and even just war, but also sacrifices and worship and death to animals, which provides food for people. And of course, we see the wonderful gift of healing in various ways in this life throughout the scriptures as well. There's a time to break down and a time to build up. Is anybody else like fascinated with those those like building implosion videos on YouTube? You know what I'm talking about? So it seems like every six months or so, you're going to get one on the news. These stadiums, like the old RFK stadium and its implosion, they hit the button and the whole thing. You know, every single one of those stadiums was brand new at one point. And the pride of the organization and people flocked to the grand opening in awe of what they saw. SoFi Stadium one day will be imploded, as brilliant as it seems to us now. There was a day, I promise you, I wasn't there, but there was a day when Greenbrier Mall was the awe of Chesapeake. <laughs> right? It was a time to build up. And, and people flocked to Greenbrier Mall. What do you guys think is happening to Greenbrier Mall now? It's like the clock is ticking, isn't it? Is anybody else going to go with me if they implode it? Like, let's go, right? And then we'll go, go to Chipotle after. <laughs> time to, to break down, a time to build up. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. And then he goes a step further, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We might weep at something sad, at a loss of a job or a friendship, but we, we mourn at the deep loss, the deep loss of innocence, the deep loss of a loved one. And of course, laughter brings life to the bones, but we, but we don't laugh when it's time to weep, or we shouldn't mourn when it's time to dance. There's a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. You clear a field of stones in order to plant your crop, or you pile up stones on the field of an enemy so they can't. Or you pile up stones if you're going to build a wall. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Human contact has to be constrained to what is appropriate. With the man who em embraces his wife when she gets off the plane, that, that man is sweet. But the man who embraces everyone who gets off the plane, that man is a creeper. It's a time to seek, a time to lose, meaning sometimes you, you search and sometimes you stop the search. From a ministry perspective, the wisdom of this we wrestle with all the time. Sometimes you leave the 99 and go after the one, and sometimes the prodigal son's father lets him go to do his thing. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away, and Everyone knows this, who's ever cleaned out their garage or attic or the trunk of their car or has invested in the stock market, right? There's a time to tear and a time to sow. 
I have nothing to say about that. I think we have all learned the hard way that there is a time to keep silent and a time to speak. There are times when you or I should, should have spoken but didn't, or, or, or times that we should have kept quiet but didn't, a time to love, and a time to hate. I wonder if that sounds offensive. And if it is, we, we just have to know our Bible and the, the calling that exists there to hate evil and to hate wickedness and even wicked doers at times who rail against God, and yet we are called to love. We just learned this in the Sermon on the Mount whose banner over it was, was love for sure. Finally, there's a time for war and a time for peace. You see how this poem, it encompasses all of our days from birth to death. And this poem encompasses all human emotions from laughter to weeping. And then it captures the wide variety of human experience and the actions that are available to us. And I think the obvious question that hangs beneath it all is, how do you know what time you're in, right? How do you know what season you are in? Or how do you know which thing to pick and when? And that's, of course, what wisdom is for. That's what wisdom is all about, these books in our Bible that, that guide us and lead us. But in the end, this poem is simply the facts, right? It's just the facts. Life under the sun is defined by an unending change of seasons, an unending shift back and forth between what is appropriate and right in its time. That's what's going on here with this poem. But now let's ask and get answers to just a few questions. All right. The first question that I have is, what does this teach us First, about God. Right? This, is, this is God's Word. So we are right to wonder, what do we learn about God from this ancient poem, this ancient observation about the reality of all of our lives? Because Solomon will now turn to commentary about these facts, about time. He, he asks again, what do we do with all this? What gain has the worker from his toil? The toil that includes trying to figure all this out. And Solomon will say, coming up, I perceived two things. I saw two things. Let me show you. In verse 9, he continues, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. First, Psalm says, I have seen the business that God has given mankind to be busy with. He has, he has observed what is true about life and the labor of living through the different seasons. And this then becomes his first conclusion. And then what we learn about God, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. In other words, Solomon is directing our attention now to the God of all time. And more specifically, to the sovereignty of God over time. Solomon directs our attention to the absolute sovereignty of God over every season and every moment of time because he says God himself is the one who controls time and God is the one who makes everything beautiful in its time. You know what everything means, right? It still means all things. 
Nothing is left out. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And if you have the power to make everything beautiful in its time, then you are the Lord of time. You are the God of time. You rule over time. You are sovereign over every moment of time in the universe. This is what we learn about God. The God above the sun is the God who has revealed himself to us as the sovereign one. The one who knows and directs and ordains all of our moments. Look, there is not a square inch of the universe over which God does not declare mine, we've heard quoted, and add to that also not a second of time. Not a nanosecond of time that God himself doesn't declare over it, mine. Mine. For example, it is God who gives life and a child is born. There's a time to be born. And it is God who gives life and determines the exact moment of life in that baby. And there is a time to die. And it is God who oversees the exact moment of every one of your deaths and mine. There has never been a human who has ever lived one nanosecond past God's appointed split second of their death. You know that, right? No one has ever lived past the exact moment that God has ordained. You can look it up in Psalm 139 and read about a God who forms us in our mother's wombs. Intricately puts you together. Gave you life intimately involved in the first moments of your existence. How precious to me are your thoughts, David would say. But then you also read that he has also written every one of our days in his book before one of them comes to be. That there's a time to be born and a time to die. And both, which are at one point unknown to us, are held in the perfect and sovereign hand of God. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And then he's, God is sovereign over our days. We learn this all throughout the pages of Scripture. Psalm 31, verse 16 says, My times are in your hands. Can you say that this morning? Do you believe that? With a, with a trusting heart, do you say to God, my times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors because there's suffering included in this life. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love because there's blessing in this life. Acts 17, we get another example. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Look, God is, is not only sovereign over the, the periods, the days of your life, but God himself has picked where you live right now. Interesting, because you thought you did, right? And I thought I did. 
But God Himself is sovereign over our days such that where you lay your head down on a pillow tonight has been ordained and directed by God's sovereignty through His providence in your life. Look, the time to be planted and the time to be uprooted are in His hands. Went to a going away party last night. It's just so tough. To be in a, in a city, in a place where we, we just have the best people in the world in our church for about three years. And then people bail, right? Or God changes their orders or God moves them on from their, their schooling or whatever it is. And those of us who, who come and stay have to walk through the difficulty of saying goodbye and watching people go. And that's not to mention the departures that are painful. People that leave what we're committed to and building our lives upon. And yet, God would say to me and to all of us, I am perfectly in charge of and sovereign over everyone who comes and everyone who goes. Every departure in your life, every introduction of a new relationship and a new friendship and a new church maybe for you, Look, it's all overseen and ordained by the God who is sovereign over time, even over our suffering. The times to weep, the time to mourn, the, time, the times when killing and hatred and death and wars arise and cause suffering. Even these seasons are in his hand and overseen by him. You know, Charles Spurgeon, we, we love Charles Spurgeon around here. I do. He's, he's one of my historic heroes. He was a pastor. And he, whether you know it or not, certainly was super successful in ministry by God's grace. But he suffered greatly in his life. Maybe most people don't know the vast variety of ways that he was afflicted in his life. And it's interesting for him, instead of blaming God or chafing at the sovereignty of God, he actually found comfort in the sovereignty of God, even with regard to his suffering. This is just one way that he says it. And follow with, follow with him here. He says, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. You get what he's saying there? He's saying that if, if a mother carefully and correctly measures in a spoon the medicine that she knows is going to make her child gag and cry and yet gives it to that child with perfect precision and love and care. How much more does God our Father, even when he allows suffering into our lives, for instance, I, I, I wouldn't be able to take it if I didn't think that, that my father was involved in the medicine that he gives to me to take. You see, he didn't, he didn't find anger and, and accusing God for the suffering in his life as a result. 
He, he didn't become afraid of God's sovereignty. That's kind of that, this, this back unknown, unexplored, not unknown, but sometimes unexplored part of God's sovereignty. If God is in control of all things in our lives, that in the main is a, a wonderful theological statement and brings assurance and comfort in many ways. Because we can in the end say, God is God and I am not. God is in control and I am not in control. And in most cases, praise God for that. But there's a part of that, if you think deeply about it, that's actually quite frightening. The sovereignty of God can become frightening. Because in the end, who knows what he's got picked for us or planned for us or what's coming. And of course, in our in our fallenness, and our diseased view of who God is, we tend to go to the negative. So this can produce fear. But, but it didn't produce fear for Spurgeon. It was powerfully comforting for him to know that there is nothing that is going to happen in my future that God is not carefully and precisely and lovingly involved in. He is the God of all time, all of our days. So what do we learn about God from, from this poem about a time for this and a time for that and a time for everything? We'll look in verse 14. The God who is mentioned nine times in six verses, by the way. Solomon says, I perceived, right? I saw, I saw again. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. And that's not afraid, but that's to honor and acknowledge and to receive his godness. That which is already, ha that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, God is God. God is the God of every time and every season that you have ever walked through. So then, here's our second question. What do we learn about us? If that's what we're meant to learn about God, that he makes everything beautiful in its time, what do we learn about us? Well, look in verse 11 again. It starts off, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And then also, he adds to it, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So God has made everything beautiful in his time. That's what we learn about him. But then we learn this about us, that God has put eternity into our hearts. And it's here that we find this Ecclesiastes-like frustration, right? Because God has placed eternity into our hearts, meaning that we know by design and by experience the linear direction of our lives. Our lives are made up of all of our yesterdays that happened one after the other in, in order, in a row. And it includes today, and our lives will include all of our tomorrows. We simply know that. And we are also, I think, suspect, if we are honest, that, that one day, this will all come to an end. I think to have eternity placed into our hearts means that this succession of all of our yesterdays and then today and all of our tomorrows is going to go on forever. 
I think that that's what we're suspicious of. I think the person that thinks when you die, you go into oblivion and nothingness, I think that they stay up at night freaked out and doubting that that's the case. That this pattern that is our, that is our experience and seems to be a part of the design of the world is going to include a forever of days. So we are aware of time. And we, we have this sense of, of eternity in our hearts. And it's been given to us by God. But what we don't have is a way to make sense of all of this. A way to make sense of all that God has done and is doing from the beginning to the end. Again, he is God and I am not. And that can be frustrating sometimes, can it? Does anybody have controlling tendencies? If you prefer, raise up your hand. Let's just be honest. And, and if you could control your life, would you? I think there's a part of all of us that feels that way, right? And yet God is God, and we are not. We wish we could know more than we do. And yet we run into this Deuteronomy 29, 29 barrier. Remember it says in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. You know what that means? That verse is the introduction to the idea that we will live our lives by faith, not knowing everything. But by God's design, required to believe things that he knows that he hasn't necessarily told us all the details about. The only reason faith exists is because there are secret things that belong to the Lord, things that we can't fully search out, including his purposes in the times and the seasons and their changes in our lives. This is what he's, he's showing this about you and me. This is why there's some of these tensions in our lives and not just for those who follow Jesus and have a little bit more information. But for the average person that wakes up every day. And as quick as that, your life becomes the past. And yet you instinctively know you've got this rest of the day, hopefully, and, and a future coming. And there's a madness in knowing about time and not knowing exactly what God is doing. So then what are we to do with this, right? If God is sovereign over every moment and, and we know it and, and have eternity in our hearts, but yet can't discern all that God is doing, how should we then respond, which is my third question, how should we respond to these facts, to these realities, to the, again, to the God who has mentioned nine times, the God of all time? And I think, once again, Solomon not only gives us an answer to how we should respond to this, but it's an invitation. It's like Solomon is, is, is wonderfully like gathering a group of people together, and he's going to go through some, some deep places, and even some dark places in some ways. But if we consider ourselves privileged to be a part of the group that sits at the feet of the wisest man in the world who's going to say, guys, I'm going to give you the secret of life. I'm going to tell you how to think about this and how to do this and, and, and think about life under the sun and all of its catastrophes. But yet, God is not ultimately absent. 
he will mention God. And once again today, he leads us in a response and he invites us, he urges us, he calls us once again to find happy. To find happy. Brothers and sisters, he might say, find happy. And we might say, how? Well, find happy, trusting God, obeying his commands, and enjoying good gifts today. This is what he's going to tell us. In other words, acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of God over all your days as you joyfully trust and obey him today. Find happy. Today, trusting in God, obeying his commands. Look what he says in in verse 12 and 13. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better. Again, he's perceiving. He's giving us the answers. There is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is the second time we find this, right? We saw it last week. It sounds a lot like last week. It's another conclusion where he's saying there's nothing better. What do we do with all of this? The the relentless change of things that happen in our lives over and over and over again and the the utter unpredictability that that puts into our lives and then the trying to to figure out which season am I in and am I supposed to speak am I supposed to stay silent right now is it is it a time to to invest because the market is taking big hits right now or is it going to get worse before it gets better like there's all these things in our human experience that, again, can push us into these, these places of overthinking and, and despair and or not the good life because we're constantly stressed and under pressure because of these realities. What does Solomon say for us to do? What is his advice to you and to me? To find happy. Find happy in specific ways. Look at what he says. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful. That's what I mean by find happy, be joyful, and to do good. Isn't that, isn't that obeying God's commands? To do good as long as they live so that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. He says to be joyful, and true joy can only come in deep trust in God who ordains all things in our lives. Look, there is a, a pathway to joy in fully acknowledging and submitting to the sovereignty of God in your life. There is a pathway to joy, and the first step on this pathway to happy in your life is to bow your knee in humble submission to the perfect, precise, impeccable planning of God in your life every moment. When you can let that go, do you know what weight comes off of your shoulders? Do you know the bandwidth that's created for joy in your life? Simply trusting in God. I found, Solomon says, there's nothing better than to be joyful. And to do good, to obey God's commands, because that indeed is also the place of joy in our lives. 
to stay within God's will. How blessed is the man, the Psalms start with, who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly and sit and stand. But his delight is in what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. Look, there is a, a path to joy that comes in finding what God says and what his will is and obeying him. Doing good all of the days of your life, he says, by the way, a time to be born, a time to die, and all of the in-between. Find happy in trusting God and obeying his commands and in enjoying his good gifts. He says also, eat and drink and enjoy your toil. This, this is the gift of God. This is the right response to the God over time in the midst of life that is always changing. Find happy, trusting in God, obeying his commands, and enjoying his good gifts today. Do you see that in there? It's another invitation. Like last week, he's going to say this seven times in the book. There's a profound todayness about joy and life and a, a profound joy that comes with trusting God with all of your tomorrows. No matter what, if it's a season to laugh or if it's a season to weep and mourn loss. And it's so great in my mind that, that this is exactly what Jesus himself did. How great it is to know that Jesus lived his earthly life in space and in time. It was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son. There wasn't a nanosecond early or late that the son of God was given human life in the womb of Mary and his nature. As fully God and fully man. Became an amazing miracle. And then some things in his life, you remember they were too early? Remember when Jesus would say, hey, it's not, my hour hasn't come yet. It's not my time. But then there were times when it came. The hour, it said, had come. And the God who ordained the birth and life and death of Jesus in time to save you and me. He then gives us the gift of faith because of Jesus to trust in him and to obey him and to find joy in his good gifts every day. To receive new mercies every morning from a gracious and sovereign God who is for us because of Jesus. Jesus who who once and for all time became the final atonement for all of our sins. Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The God we can trust as a father who holds all of our times and our seasons in his hands. And, and Jesus then promises to never leave us or forsake us as we walk through all of our times. We have a Savior who not only reconciles us to God and forgives all of our sins, but says, I am with you through every season of your life. The time for this and the time for that will never be exempt from Christ and his presence walking you through it. This is good news, brothers and sisters, isn't it? And then the only thing better is that there is going to come a time Jesus says, a moment 
a, a split second where the skies will crack. And the great and glorious return of our Savior will not happen one nanosecond too soon and one nanosecond too late. Jesus is coming back to redeem us for all time, for all eternity. So, so how do we respond? I grew up singing the song, Trust and Obey. Did you ever sing that? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Isn't that, isn't that profound? Because who here isn't desperate for happy today? I am. Are you? Desperate for happy, for joy. And this little jingle that rang in my six-year-old ear, learned from my children's ministry someplace in Tempe, Arizona, taught me that there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to what? Trust in him with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding and obey. Trust in the Lord and do good the psalm says. Even those who are, are suffering, Peter says, submit yourself to a gracious and sovereign father while doing good. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus and then to enjoy all of his good gifts. God has been good to us, amen? Today is full of the blessing of God. None of us know what tomorrow holds. God is in all of our tomorrows and he's waiting there for good gifts that even when we're suffering, even when your world has been turned upside down, which I know some of you it has, God will provide comforts that will surprise you. He will still provide good things that will aid you because he's so good. Amen. Let's pray and worship team, you can come. Lord, we thank you for how amazing your word is in that for something hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old, written in a language way foreign to us, in a genre, wisdom that's, that's far removed from us and our normal way of learning things, how amazing it is at how powerful and relevant this is for us today. Lord, I thank you that you're feeding us as your people, week in and week out, and giving us, inviting us into the joy of responding now to your word as we chew on this and think on this. Lord, for the one who's angry with you because of, of the twists and turns in life, the one who is arrogant or proud, thinking their times are in their hands. But I pray that you would give the gift of humble submission. Or for the one who doesn't know you, who has not come into a relationship with you, Lord, we thank you that today is the day of salvation. Now is the time, Lord, to come to you. Lord, I pray that with boldness and courage they would bow their knee and say, Jesus, save me there's a time to be born, then certainly there's a time to be born again. Lord, may that be the time right now. In the fullness of your time, would you save? 
Lord, would you lead us all to trust you, to live for you, to obey you, and to enjoy you because this is the good gift from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.